Hi, I'm Jules Hamilton, and this is the Good Summer Podcast, Keeping It Good. It's a chance for all of us to hear stories of people making a positive change in the world. The Good Summit is a space of gathering to celebrate common good in the world and to cultivate more of it. Join the Tribe of Good by signing up to our mailing list at thegoodsummit.com and learn where our latest gatherings are taking place, who is going to be there, and how you can get involved. Help us help you make the world a better place. Today on the Good Summit podcast, keeping it good. Simon Anholt is one of those rare humans who truly uses his brilliance to play a role in making the world a better place. Simon has been with us from the start. He spoke at the first two Good Summits, and we are sure he's coming back again. He brings a freshness and vitality to his intellectual rigor, and he wants to see the world be better. Simon is a successful businessman and global strategist who has worked with governments and presidents in multiple countries, using decades of experience and tens of thousands of data collection points to move us toward a more full understanding of what it takes to make countries good. A best-selling author of several books, Simon's latest release, The Good Country Equation, is an incredible tour of the world and what it takes to make a country a country and a world good. And of course, how we can all participate. A TEDx speaker with millions of views, a scholar, writer, global strategist, and a good guy who actually cares about the things he talks about. This podcast was recorded at the end of 2020 in the run-up to the presidential election in America, so you'll forgive the conversation not knowing how the world looks right now. We are honoured Simon is joining us again for a conversation on the things that matter. Simon Anholt, it is a sheer delight to see you again. You um, you were our first ever major keynote in the Good Summit a few years ago. You've stayed in contact with us and we love your work. We love what you're doing. And it's just it's just lovely to get a chance to have a natter. Um 2020, mate. It's been it's been quite a year. Can I sincerely ask, first off, how are you doing? It's good of you to ask, Jules. I'm, um, I, I'm fine, actually. Um, it might sound um, callous or insensitive, but actually the pandemic suits me. Um, I'm lucky in the sense that nobody close to me has, has, has been unwell. I'm also lucky because I live in the country, so mm. I've got space. And I think that's what makes the difference. And I, just, and I hate traveling. So not being able to travel, even if I want to, has been a bit of a luxury. Sorry, you, you hear traveling? Yeah, I do. Simon, you have been a, a, a consultant to the governments of the world. Mm. <laughs> it's over 50 countries yeah. or governments you've worked with in, in yeah. your career. How is that I hate traveling work out with that? Um, <laughs> well, it's a, bit, it's, a, it's a bit of a tension, let's put it that way. I mean, um, I mean it's... A, Tension. I don't mean it's attention. Um, <laughs> there is attention there um, in that I love it when I get there and I love the work I do when I get there. I just don't like getting there or getting back again. I have a problem with aeroplanes. I don't believe in them. Um, and you, you have to believe that they work and I just don't really. 
Um, but it's okay. I mean, it keeps me on my toes. Are, are um, you one of those people who like a small glass of whiskey and half a valley? And as soon as you get onto a plane, is how you handle a long journey. Uh, <laughs> Dangerous yeah, practice. Yeah, that sort of that sort of stuff. You see, I don't I don't really do alcohol, so a small a small dose will will work very effectively on me. <laughs> um, Simon, can I take you back? Um, you have got a book out um, this year, which I, perhaps the the solitude and the quiet of 2020 helped to, to get it all kind of wrapped up and finishing touches. I don't know, but um, the, the book I'm really enjoying, I'm only halfway through it, I must confess, but I'm really enjoying it because you are saying some really serious things about the current state of the world, but you're telling me like it's a story. It, like it's a story of your life, the story of your work. Mm-hmm. This is how you got interested. This is what you tried to do. This is what didn't work. This is where we ended up. This is what I discovered the real problem was. This is what we're trying to do. Uh, it's a real flow, a beautiful narrative flow of of how the world maybe could be. At, at, at least I'm not at that bit yet. I hope you're going to take me to this is how the world <laughs> could be. Um Tell me the story of the book and what really brought you to this space. I think um, I think writing a new book, adding a a new book to the huge, huge, huge pile of books that are already out there that stretch to the moon and back. It's actually quite a responsibility. I think uh, I think writers, especially of nonfiction, should should be aware of their responsibility. Mm. What is you know, by what right do you allow yourself the luxury of adding yet another book to that huge pile and yet another book onto people's already long reading lists in an age where people don't like to read very much anymore? And I'm I'm one of them. You know, a, a, a whole book is a lot to read these days and, and more's the pity. So I just found myself thinking, okay, well, what will justify adding another book to the pile? And the main reason was pretty clear to me right from the start, which is that it's very obvious that all the challenges that humanity is facing today from climate change and pandemics right the way down to small arms proliferation, um, they're all caused by, by people, by us. Mm. And if we're the problem, then we're the solution. Okay. But if all the books that talk about it and explain it aren't really accessible to the majority of people, because they're basically lectures, they're basically textbooks written by incredibly clever people, but you just can't read them because they're written in black and white. And once you've left school or you've left university, you don't want to read textbooks. Yeah. Most people just can't digest them. So I thought to myself, the first thing this book has got to be is readable. And we all know how you make a book readable. You give it a plot. You write it in color. Mm. You have people and places and episodes. And, 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 and my, my professional life over the last 20 years has been so ridiculous. I mean, you know, the, the, the scrapes I've got myself into and the bizarre things that have happened. Um, people have been saying to me for years, you know, just stop boring me with these ridiculous stories and write a novel, for God's sake. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll do the two together. I'll make it a novel about the state of the world that then ends up with some recommendations and see how it goes down. And so far, it's going down really well. People are saying, I read it in one sitting. Oh, fantastic. Give us one or two of those crazy stories. Give us one or two of the things that as you look back over the last decade of your work, you, you actually go, no, no, I, I, I dreamt that. That actually didn't happen. 
Well, the, one, the one that everybody seems to like best is the one where I got locked in a palace laboratory in Bhutan. <laughs> oh, please go on. <laughs> I, was, I was supposed to be I was supposed to be giving a talk to to I don't know how many hundreds of Bhutanese civil servants, and and they were all sitting in a room waiting for me to come along and give this talk. And um, they politely asked me if I wanted to use the conveniences, and I didn't. I was just being polite when I said yes, because it seems rude to say no. <laughs> and I was shown into this tiny little room in this extraordinary wooden palace in the middle of Timpu. Um, and um, it had an Italian doorknob, you know, one of those brass ones with a little tiny rotating catch in the middle that no human being could possibly have invented because they can't be used by human beings. And it stuck. It stuck on me. And I couldn't get the door open. And eventually they had to come and break down the door with fire extinguishers. Um, and tell, I was, tell, me, I was, tell me it wasn't actual royalty uh, that, that came to break down the door. <laughs> I, I, I'll never know because they were on the other side of the door until the deed was done. But it could have been His Majesty the King for all I know. Anyway, no, I, was a bit late, I was a bit late starting the lecture. <laughs> I bet. Um, Simon, taking, I really love that idea of taking the, the narrative, a, a real narrative, and trying to get people to understand the realities of the world around us according to, according to story, according to your life as it actually has been, according to what you've seen. Where, uh, 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 I'm trying to form the right question, but, but I'm not very smart. I just ramble until something comes out, Simon. Here's one of my concerns at the state of the world at the minute is, is that we're losing the ability to think mm. and to reason and to look at things, you know, perhaps as they are. And yes, I know, and each and end, we, we see things as we are, not as they are. And, and I really do believe that the, the specs with which we look at the world really influence what we see. It seems to me in the last decade or more, um, the specs that we're looking through are in, are less rational and thinking than they have been for a long time. Am I, am I right in that? Um, because that seems to be part of a, at the heart of your approach of trying to say some things in a way that, as you just said, is not a lecture, but, but is real. I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think the reality is that the world has changed faster than we have. Mm. And so we find ourselves ill-equipped to manage the world that we're plunged into. Things are changing so quickly at the moment, and that's partly technology. Mm. It's partly just the general pace of globalization. And we're finding day after day after day that we just don't really have the right equipment, the right mental equipment. For example, much of what the book is about is about the obvious need for us to collaborate more and compete less, right? Because the, the big challenges, all of the challenges, but climate change, pandemics, self-evidently, they're too big for any one country to fix. Yeah. And people have been saying this over and over again. And it's an important lesson. If one country manages to eradicate COVID within its own borders, it's just no use at all because we're all connected. We're all globalized. We're all interdependent. Okay. And it's like whack-a-mole. You push a problem down in one country, it'll pop up in another. And that's just as true about international organized crime or climate change as it is about the pandemic. And so self-evidently, the only way we're going to be able to tackle any of these challenges is if we learn to work together as countries, and we don't. And the reason that we don't is because we've got, as you said, the wrong equipment. Countries are still configured in exactly the way they were on the morning the Treaty of Westphalia was signed 300 years ago. 
Mm. We are still warring, competing tribes. And our DNA of the countries, the populations, and the governments of those countries is to fight each other for supremacy. America first, Bulgaria first, New Zealand first. We're all the same. We're no, we're no better or, or worse than, than, than America first. It's the primary instinct of all governments. Get there first. Win the race. And this is suicidal. And it's part of the reason why we're in the mess we're in. So we need a fundamental change in the culture of governance from competitive to collaborative. And that, and that doesn't mean that I have a problem with competition. Competition is great. It's a really important human energy. It's a really important part of who we are. But it becomes a problem when it's the only altar at which we worship. And that's been the case for the last 80 years. So we need to change it. Can I ask you, following on from that, what, I'm not sure whether it's a rude question or not, but explain to me, in the context of what you just said, over 70 million Americans voting for Donald Trump. The people who vote for, for Donald Trump or, or, or Brexit or any party or any cause that you might find hard to agree with or I might find hard to agree with, of course, you don't need me to tell you this, are not mad or bad or stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, it is perfectly possible that the people that are luring them towards an unsustainable policy are mad or bad or stupid, and they shouldn't really be doing that. But we as human beings are not hard to lead. It's not difficult to get us to follow somebody, especially when we feel that we're in trouble, especially when times are hard, especially when we feel threatened. And uh, what, what we call populism, okay, I'm, I'm always nervous about the term populism because all politics is populist. That's the mm-hmm. whole point. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing innately wrong with trying to simplify things and, and dramatize things so that lots of people like them. But we're always vulnerable to the populists who take the shortcut, the simple uh, explanations for what's wrong. What's wrong is usually quite complicated. But anybody who comes along and says it's not complicated, it's simple. It's about this group. It's about these people. It's like Hitler saying it's the Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's so simple and so appealing, and it makes sense of the nightmare that, that, that the population is living through at that moment, they will always get followers. As we've seen with Donald Trump, and as we've seen in many, many cases, the trouble with populists is that they're often not very interested in running countries. And the way that our democratic systems work is that people have to, cam- leaders have to campaign as populists to get people on their side, but then they have to lead um, as, as sharers and as public servants, and often those two don't go together. I'm, I'm really interested in the people who will say democracy is broken. Look, look at the votes of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then I'm looking at the turnout of the last US election, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking more people than ever in human history participated in the democratic process. Yeah. So I actually bat my own um, distaste back for the fact that so many people recognize that they have a voice yeah. in an important decision. And that at least, uh, that's back my, my concern that nobody's thinking anymore. Well, <laughs> I don't think democracy is broken. I think informed democracy, which is the only kind that you can really rely on, <clears throat> is um, a little unwell at the moment. And that's why it's um, going back to, to your very sensible point about it's us. Um, it's, about, it's about us. Sure, we get the leaders we deserve. And if we are populations who are vulnerable to shallow solutions, um, then we get the, we get the leaders we deserve. 
That's, that's our problem. And so that's why pretty much whatever the question is in this domain, the answer is education. It's to do with how we're brought up. And that brings us straight back to where we were 10 minutes ago. We're still bringing up new generations of human beings according to a set, according to a vision of the world, which is just out of date. We're not teaching young people, we're not giving them the equipment they need to be able to behave in the right way, to, to, to understand what politicians are saying to us properly, to see through it, or any of the other things that we need to do. And that's why one of the two um, bigger recommendations I make in the book is this project, which I call The Good Generation. It's the one I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, go on, which is, tell us about it. Well, the good generation basically um, basically starts with that position, which is that we need to change the way that human beings are brought up. If all the world's problems are caused by people, people are the problem, therefore people are the solution. If you want to change the human race, changing adults is very, very difficult, as we know, because by the time you pass 30, you're pretty much convinced of everything. Changing children are rather... I was, I was 22, Simon, just... <laughs> Ch changing children or rather building children is is horrifyingly easy and that's why the education of children is quite rightly so carefully ring-fenced and protected i've been told off by jesuits for saying that it was a jesuit that it was francis xavier who said give me the boy and i will give you the man apparently it wasn't um i think if i were the jesuits i'd be claiming that that, that we said that because because it's a it's a wise thing to say i think it was voltaire misunderstanding what francis xavier said but who cares the point is that you can shape a generation through education and we know it works every time you get a phenomenon like greta thunberg who's done more for the cause of climate change before she's even finished school than most of our generations have done in the whole of our adult lifetimes this is the evidence that it works um, if in Swedish schools they teach kids about climate change, they ignite their passion, they fill their baskets with knowledge, and the moment they're free to do so, they will run towards those challenges instead of running away from them, which is what our generations have done. So all I'm saying is let's just acknowledge that that works. Let's just acknowledge that that's the real solution, the only solution. Let's accept that if we do it everywhere, all at once, worldwide, by popular consent, we can do it in just one generation, and maybe we've got a generation if we do it right now. Okay, well, say that again. Everywhere, all at once, um, in one generation. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So it's not difficult. Basically, what, what we're trying to do is we're trying to organize a great big online global conversation, which with the magic of artificial intelligence, you can do now. It doesn't have to be a survey anymore. You can actually have a real open-ended natural language conversation with infinite numbers of people using, I don't know why it's called artificial intelligence. It's just a kind of super moderator. It's a system for having big discussions, processing all that data and telling you what people are basically saying. So the idea is we have, we have this big conversation with people from every single one of the 195 odd countries that are out there. And we all see if we can pin down six or seven or eight fundamental values, virtues, principles, learnings that we all agree we want the next generation of our children to be instilled with when they're at school. And then we will have a generation that, that run towards the challenges. We turn it into a kind of compact. We get all the education ministers in the world to sign up to it. And then we start um, putting it in place. And anybody who says to me, You'll never get worldwide agreement on something as sensitive as that. The way we bring up our children, come on, are you kidding? 
I always say, look, go take another look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948. Every single country on earth practically signed up to that. It's one of the most beautiful documents ever, ever written. It's one of the great achievements of humanity. Mm-hmm. I think that human rights is much more sensitive than the education of children, and yet we did it. Because in 1948, we were under extreme stress. The global system looked as if it was falling apart, and we acknowledged that that was necessary after two world wars. The same with the United Nations Charter in 1945. And I think that we're in a period of stress now in 2021, which is somewhat similar to 45 and 48 in that respect. It's a time of dire emergency. And given that case, I think we can get everybody to agree on this. I'm sure we can. I know we can. And that's what we need to do. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. And... Without sounding mercenary, how far along are you and how is that going? Um, mercenary because you're about to offer me funding. <laughs> mercenary because I, I, I didn't want to sound like, hey, listen to good, someone can help you with this, but, but let us. <laughs> uh, how far along I've are I've heard we? you talk about this a little bit and it's massively exciting. And But the last time we talked about it was about a year ago. So I'm yeah. just wondering, how, how is it coming? Well, it's 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 beginning to accelerate now. the The most important thing is that I've um, I've got a a corporate partner. Um, I'm not going to tell you who it is because I'm not. I, I realise as I say this, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mm-hmm. um, in public. But anyway, they're a professional services firm. They're global, and they're not paying for the thing, but their customers, their clients, are all the biggest companies and organisations in the world. So they're bringing in their clients to support it. Um, technology companies, funding uh, organizations, and all the other stuff that we need, research and so forth. So um, we're now at the beginning of the beginning in the sense that it's now moving. We've got a team together and we're starting to work on it. Uh, and what we're working on at the moment is mainly working with uh, with academics and experts in education mm-hmm. uh, from all around the world, trying to put together a long list of what those fundamental values, virtues, principles, learnings, the toolkit. The Sometimes I, I know that it's a bit of an unfortunate metaphor, but sometimes I see it as more like a vaccine. For, for every global challenge, there is an educational vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. The reason that climate change exists is because of the way that people behave. The reason why people behave the way they do is because of the way they were brought up or failed to be brought up. And therefore, there is an educational vaccine that will prevent you from eating too much red meat or driving your car too much or going on holiday in a plane too often, whatever it is. And and I know that sounds very sinister, which is why I don't normally use the the metaphor in public, but it's actually quite a useful way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. You've got a little test tube rack with seven or eight little test tubes full of educational essence that teaches you stewardship so you learn to respect nature, that teaches you brotherhood so you learn not to um, to, 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 to be racist or intolerant. It teaches you um, anthropology so that you become an expert in cultural difference rather than regarding people as aliens because they come from a different culture mm-hmm. and so on and so on and so on. So there's a whole program in there which, which makes it um, rewarding for children to learn this stuff. This podcast is proudly supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make The Good Summit look great. Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com. 
tell us about the the positive cross contamination. You, you started in this whole medical type type stuff. <laughs> tell us about where you know the word you just used, brotherhood, stewardship. Whenever you go to, you've, you've used different words, which I think is probably quite deliberate, whether it's values, whether it's principles, you know, um, those things, as I listen to them, that's my, that's my other half of my working life. Yeah. You know, religion. The, 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 yeah. That, those are questions of faith. Yeah. And to me, questions of faith are questions of purpose and dignity mm. and, and meaning. That, mm. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And, and so where, where are you? going because you have this incredible reach of research. Uh, you're getting all this incredible material. You will be able to convince people who put together curriculums that these are the things that can work on a very wide basis. They, these are the questions that we need, uh, th- th- that we need the, the classroom to concentrate on if we want to see a different world within a generation or two. Um, where do you then start going to the stuff that is not just the head or the hand, but is the heart as well? Mm. Where, do, where do the questions of purpose and <clears throat> dignity fit into this? Head and heart are, are um, the irreducible minimum. Um, if, you, if you teach somebody about climate change, there's a, a strong likelihood, and that's all you do, there's a strong likelihood that that knowledge will just sit in their heads for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. and gradually fade away and never be used or activated. In fact, it can be counterproductive because if you know about problems and you understand how they work, and yet you don't see how you can contribute to solving them, that can actually cause quite a lot of depression. And I think that's what we're seeing at the moment in Generation Z, Generation Z, Uh that they are actually receiving a lot of information now about global challenges, but we're not activating them. And so they're ending up feeling as if they're carrying the burden of our mistakes on their shoulders. And that's why there's a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety in that, in that generation, my children's generation. It's a simplification, but I think there's, there's, there's something of that going on. When you mention religion, of course you mention religion. Every religion there's ever been, or every serious religion, um, has the same elements within it. Um, all men and women are your brothers and sisters. Um, God, providence whatever it is, gave us the natural world for us to look after. And so we go on. Those are the basic premises. So these, and, and, and you're right, I'm very careful to use a list of words every time because values, for example, is intrinsically something of a Western notion. Yeah. yeah. Virtues is to some degree more of an Eastern notion. Um, but then there are also things like principles and learnings, which are more to do with head than with heart. So you've always got to have that pair. But the important thing with a project like this is that we leave the implementation completely open so that it can be interpreted according to the traditions and the manners and the culture of the country where it's being implemented. The very, very last thing that I would want to do is to impose syllabus. It just wouldn't even work. I mean, imagine... um, it's a funny thing about educational charities that in the West, their first instinct always seems to be to jump on a plane to Africa and then rush out and start hugging African kids in a school. But actually, if you're looking at the behaviors of people that cause the global challenges, Africa is the least of our problems. We should be jumping off planes in Texas and going and hugging American children. Um, this is, you know, this is very far away from the 19th century philanthropic notion 
that this is all about helping the developing world. The developing world has quite a lot to teach us when it comes to uh, how to bring up children to be um, sustainable, to um, uh, to to, um, to, um, to to just behave in a world that that that, that, that works. So. Um, it's always going to be both. And by the way, it's also equally secular. The values, the virtues, the principles, the learnings are there in a secular context for those who prefer it. I'm happier in a secular context. I wouldn't dream of imposing that on people who are happier understanding it in a religious context. It's got to be a set of values that fit everywhere. And they already exist. I mean, it's not as if we're inventing these things. They've been known and understood since the beginning of time, but they need an update. Can I be so bold as to ask, does that mean we actually all just need to learn to love each other and the world around us? Um, it's always tempting to, to want to boil things down to a single principle. And at least twice a week, I come up with one of those. <laughs> and I say, my God, it's all about critical thinking, or my God, it's all about love, or my God, it's all about tolerance, or something like that. There is a set there. And I think... You know, because we're so complicated human beings and life on earth can when we get we together. Can we teach those? That, I suppose that's the real question. Can, can we teach people to be tolerant? Can we teach people to be loving? Can we teach people to, to kind of to take a breath before they make a decision and think critically? Yes, yes, because, because we know that those, those virtues um, are in all of us. We know that their opposites are also in all of us. Um, and so it's just a matter of encouraging the right ones to come out. I mean, you know, one has to get this thing in context. This is the same stuff that's been taught to children since the beginning of time. And the world does actually work pretty damn well. I mean, it's very easy in moments like this to start thinking that everything is broken and everything is wrong. But actually, I think that's a very, very false and very dangerous way of looking at the world. Actually, almost everything works. We've got some huge problems at the moment, but look how amazingly well the international society, the international systems work. Look yeah. how peaceful most societies are. Look how rapidly knowledge is advancing in most areas. Look how prosperous and stable most societies are compared to where they were a few hundred years ago. We experience progress all the time. We are doing really, really well. We've just got ourselves into a bit of a tangle in the last few years, and we need to untangle that, but we're well able to do it. And these basic principles, they've been at the heart of all of that progress, and they must continue to be so. But as I say, we just need to acknowledge that um, all of the, the little experiments that are going on at the moment all over the world, teaching climate change in Sweden, teaching uh, citizenship in Kenya, and so on and so forth, that's not helping because it's too fragmented. So all that's needed now is not a new set of values for a new age or anything like that, but just a plan to, to coalesce all of this so that it's right now and everywhere. Simon, that's fantastic. Don't want to take up, uh, don't want to take too much more of your time, but really want to, to say, first of all, really enjoying this. But you have been on the forefront. You know, I, I'd said earlier on that you were one of our first keynotes at the first ever Good Summit. And that's, that's because people that we know and trust, whenever we said we want to do an event that celebrates common good in the world, we want to, we want to see goodness and kindness and generosity and patience and tolerance and love I keep talking about. You know, we want to see those things 
celebrated and we want to try to do what we can to cultivate more of it. And whenever we said that's what we want to do, you were the first name that people we trusted said, well, you got to bring in Simon Anhold. And, and mm-hmm. so we really appreciate your friendship and joining in the conversation about trying to see the world be a better place. Again, if I may be so bold as to ask, that's not an easy position to hold. Believing that things can, uh, should be better and that we can do something about it is an easy thing to say. But, you know, intellectually as well as emotionally at times, it's just really tough. How do you, how do you survive? How do you stay in that place? You know, you, you know, 10 million views in one of your, your TED talks, for, for example, more than that now. And um, there's particular pressures coming with the profile that, that you have. How, how do you keep yourself going? It really doesn't feel like that at all. Um, okay. I mean, you, you were describing somebody that doesn't sound like me. Um, <laughs> you're describing some kind of superstar who's, you know, can't no. leave his house without being besieged by reporters. I, 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 was, I was describing <laughs> someone here I know gives a damn. <laughs> you know, like I want us all to. <laughs> Let me try and give you a sensible answer. Um, well, let's keep going like this. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> the sensible answer is um, that, first of all, my unfashionable optimism about the state of the world and the future of humanity is just an incurable disease. I've, I've given up trying to fix it. You know, everybody around me seems to be despondent and I feel really kind of alone and left out some of the time. And I've tried to think like they do and I just can't, so I've given up. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on being optimistic. <laughs> um, the, the other thing is that I've noticed that everybody around me seems to have very firm opinions about things. And that's another thing I can't do. The older I get, the less opinions I have. Um, and the better I seem to be at coming up with seeing not only both sides, but every damn side of every question. And um, I really admire people who have strong opinions about things, but I just don't seem to have any anymore. So I just put my head down and keep working. The other thing I wanted to say, although this is a bit more serious, the, the reason that I'm able to stick with these kinds of projects and these kinds of plans and indeed to write the book is because I'm not seeking refuge in um, just fluffy stuff. I love the fluffy stuff, but on its own, it doesn't stand up and you can feel as if you're on a shaky platform with it sometimes. I always ally it with research and proof and evidence and strong arguments. And again, I wouldn't have allowed myself the luxury of writing the book if all it had fundamentally been is a book that says, wouldn't it be lovely if everyone was lovely? So there's not much in there about altruism. Indeed, not much in there about kindness or loving. I think those things speak for themselves. What I'm interested in doing mainly because I work at the level of the nation state and nation states are not moral entities. They're not people, right? They are vehicles for collective self-interest. There have to be good, solid, reasoned arguments for why countries should behave as they should. And the reason why I allowed myself to write the book is because I figured that one out. I figured out a couple of reasons why it's possible to go to governments and say, start working harder on climate change or migration or poverty or inequality or violence or whatever it is, because it's in your direct immediate interest to do so. Not because I'm um, a Westerner and I'm telling, I'm, I'm giving you a moral lecture, 
not because it would be lovely if you were lovely, not because it's your moral duty, but because it will benefit you in your work as running a country in the short term. So I'm not a cynic, but I think that when you're dealing with nations, it's got to be hard reasoned arguments, self-interest arguments. And that's what I've got. And that's an easier platform to stand on because when you feel challenged about it, you don't come back to repeating it's love, it's love, it's love. You come back to repeating, here's the data, here's the data. It's just proof. Sooner or later, they'll see it. And they do see it. What's the self-interest that that data shows then? Well, one of the most interesting ones, and this, uh, and this has been my funny career because working, advising governments over the years, I get involved with a lot of topics. And one of the topics that governments are very, very interested in is the images of countries. Mm-hmm. And that was actually where I started my career, measuring how ordinary people see other countries and how that drives the economies of those countries. So countries with good, powerful, positive images like Sweden or Switzerland or whatever, they get loads of tourists, investors, um, talent. They attract all the good stuff because everybody knows they're great. It's like corporations with good brands. You know, The countries with bad or weak images find that everything is difficult and everything is expensive. And it pushes rich and poor countries further and further and further apart. National image is one of the primary causes of global inequality because the poor countries also have to tackle um, the headwinds of negative reputation. Nobody believes anything they do. Nobody pays any attention. And so I've done masses of research over the years into how people regard other countries. And around about 2014, 2012, I discovered that I collected a billion data points one of the largest social surveys ever, it turned out. I'd been running without realizing it, um, just questioning ordinary people. A sample that represents about 70% of the world's population on how they see other countries and why. And I discovered, I made an amazing discovery, that the countries that people admire most are the countries that do most good. So the reason why people admire Norway, for example, is because they think that Norway, correctly in some senses, that Norway is a country that benefits the world outside its own borders, right? Um, And that's why I launched the Good Country Index to try and measure how much each country does outside its own borders, positive and negative. So that's a bit of an untidy buildup, but the simple equation that comes out of the end of it is very simple. If countries want to uh, do well, if they want to earn more money, if they want to benefit from the globalized markets that they operate in, they need a good image. And the only way they can get a good image is by benefiting humanity and the planet. Do you foresee a future where the economic question is not the primary one for a country? Um, No. Why not? Well, because I think um, I think although so many of our problems are caused by the fact that we we worship money and we see money as being the central determining factor of everything we do, and although economics has become the de facto state religion in most countries on earth, nonetheless, it's somewhat inevitable that it should be so because we need a token for understanding um, progress power, prosperity, equality, inequality, and all the rest of it. And money is just a very, very deeply established system for doing that. It's well acknowledged to be very a very poor one. And we're becoming more and more sophisticated now about how the way about the way that we measure other things alongside money. So you know, for far too long, it was just all about GDP, which everybody, including the person who invented GDP in the first place, acknowledged is a very, very poor, very thin, very inadequate way of measuring progress. So then the UN came along with the Human Development Index and said that it's actually more about 
the prospects and the potential offered to the citizens within a country than the amount of productive financial muscle they bring to bear. And it's it, the Good Country Index, I hope, has contributed a little bit to that as well. My argument is it's not just how well you treat your own people, it's also how much good or harm you export outside your own borders to humanity and the planet. And year by year by year, we're getting wiser about mingling and mixing and slicing and dicing the economic facts with the human facts. Way back in 1970, there was a wonderful book uh, written, um, which was called Small is Beautiful. And the subtitle of the book was A Study of Economics as if People Mattered. Wow. Um, we should have paid more attention to that book when it came out. But economics now is beginning to acknowledge that people do matter. And behavioral economics and psychology and culture and anthropology um, and collective psychology are beginning to feed into that discipline. And it's been broken open. And it's no longer now a kind of shibboleth at which all governments well, some of them still do, but it won't be forever now. Uh, um, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's that thing that actually capitalism itself has gone through several cycles and doesn't look like it did, you know, 80 years ago. Um, and, you know, in another 50 years, how we use money and, and what we're putting alongside it, uh, as you have just said, well, you know, it's, it's a constantly moving feast. Yeah. I mean, look, look at corporations, look at corporate social responsibility. That's been a really, really important change. No matter how cynical one might want to be about companies' motivations, and one hears terms like greenwashing all the time. You know, <clears throat> Jules, the older I get, the less I care to consider what people's motivations might be. I just mm. don't think they matter. We're in a state of emergency. The main thing is that people do the right thing. Who cares? It's, it's it, it, why they do it. I mean, it's so impudent to guess at other people's motivations for doing the right thing. You know, you should say, well, they're doing it. Am I? You know, if all I'm doing here is sitting here carping at why I think they're doing it, that's, you know, that's a luxury you can afford when everything's great, but everything isn't that great at the moment. So, um, so that's important to say, but you look at corporate social responsibility, the way that corporations now behave, the declaration of the business roundtable recently, that the fundamental purpose of business um, is to the fundamental duty of business is towards society, no longer as previously towards its own stakeholders. These are big, important changes. And the recognition that business came to, what, 30, 40 years ago, actually in one of my earlier books, I argued it started in the 13th century, that business realized that it had to earn, earn its place in society as a principled member of society if it was to have the right to continue to trade within society. And that's been a a, a, a slow-burning revolution that's been going on for centuries, and it's improving almost every day. Now, what the, my book, The Good Country Equation, argues is, in a sense, the corporate social responsibility is an experiment that's now long overdue for countries. Yeah, yeah. And um, that um, acknowledgement that you can't just be an economic player. You have a stake in society and you're responsible to society. In the case of countries, international society, that's now inescapable. And so basically, I'm arguing that corporate social responsibility at the level of the nation state already exists. And the sooner governments begin to understand that in that sense, they're just like Nike. You know, you can't pretend to be a good country and at the same time be uh, persecuting minorities. It, you'll be found out yeah. and you will lose Absolutely. market support. And if you lose market support, you lose growth and your own population ends up suffering. 
Absolutely. Simon, this has been once again an absolute delight. Um, I will always take a little bit of pride that the island I live on came first in your very first Good Country Index. Uh, I will tell people uh, about this island everywhere uh, that, that I can. I think we've slipped down. <laughs> but, but we don't need to, to centre that. Thank you for finishing there, by the way, in terms of uh, we, we talked earlier on about the connection between the head and the heart and you just brought us back to the hand being mm. part of that vital equation with the head and the heart and the hand. Mm. You got to, if you believe this stuff, you got to take the actions. You can't sit, sit, sit back and let everybody else get involved, you know, but to actually care enough and rationalize enough and be aware enough to, to put your hand where your, your mouth or your heart might be mm. is absolutely vital. Sir, what, what, what a delight. Just lovely to see you. We're, uh, we're going to be back in Dublin in October. So, mate, gonna, we're going to be in touch. you got to come back and join us again. I'd love to. Help broaden the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Good Summit Podcast. Brought to you in conjunction with Forfi. It was produced by Lee McMahon with Eva McNulty for the Good Summit. Music was provided by the fabulous Ian Archer. Stay connected with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Good Summit and find out all you need to know on www.thegoodsummit.com and come back and join us again next time. Till then, go go forth, forth, do do some some good. good. Peace Peace to you and and to to the the world. world.